1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. The Apostle Peter is writing to Christians in multiple places. Unlike Paul, whose letters typically address one church in one location, Peter is addressing Christians who are scattered across hundreds of thousands of square miles. In spite of their different locations, there is something all of Peter's readers are experiencing on some level. That is, they are spiritually estranged from those around them. Because they are followers of Jesus, they are looked down upon, they are looked upon with amusement. Uh, in some cases, they are shown outright antagonism. Peter is encouraging them through his letter to remain faithful in the hostility, and he is showing them how to do so. So we are picking up our reading this morning with 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17. If you address this father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is God's word. Believe it or not, I remember the days when there were no cell phones. I'm sure most of you do as well. When I was growing up, if I was at a friend's house and I needed to call my mom or dad, I would have to actually use the landline. It was located inside of their home. I was reading a father's account about how he told his young son to call home when he got to his friend's house safely. Remember those days? The boy remembered to do so the first few times, but it wasn't long until the boy forgot. His dad called to check on him and, and told him that if it happened again, then he would have to come home immediately. Well, there came a day when the father once again sat by a silent phone and he figured his son forgot. He was frustrated, but he was also, as you can imagine, a little bit concerned. Finally, he picked up the receiver, and as he dialed, the father breathed a quick prayer. What he prayed was this, Lord, help me to treat my son like you treat me. As soon as the phone rang once, the father hung up. And he sat there for a second, wondering what to do now, perhaps wondering why he even hung up. When suddenly, his phone began to ring, and on the other end of the line, he heard, I made it safely, Dad. Sorry, I forgot to call. What took you so long, the father asked. His son replied, well, we started playing and I forgot. But dad, I heard the phone ring once and I remembered. I'm glad you remembered, his dad said. Have fun. I'm afraid that we often see God as just waiting to punish us when we step out of line. Instead, we should ask, how often does God ring once, hoping that we will phone home? As we look together at this passage this morning, we're going to learn something about how God deals with his children. Punishment is a very different matter than discipline. And we're going to unpack that difference and then look at why we receive the discipline. Of God. So first of all, 
the coming judgment. Let's consider the coming judgment. At the beginning of this letter, Peter reminds his readers what has happened to them. In fact, what's happened to every Christian. Verse 3, chapter 1, we have been caused to be born again. Now, you did not cause yourself to be born the first time. That was someone else's doing, namely your parents. Neither do you cause yourself to be born again. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are placed into the family by God. To be born the first time is to be born into your physical family. To be born the second time is to be born into a spiritual family. So if you are a Christian, God is your father. Therefore, when Peter writes in verse 17, if you address as father, he is speaking specifically about those of us who call God our father. This does not apply to everyone, for everyone is not a child of God. If you are a Christian, you are by virtue of your relationship with God that he established a son or a daughter. And by virtue of that same relationship, you approach God with your needs and with your desires. And the same way a child communicates his or her needs and desires to their earthly father, you and I do the same with our heavenly father, and we call this prayer. Only the person who is born again can relate to God with this level of intimacy and confidence. However, a change in relationship status does not change the fact that God is still a judge. God will judge the believer and the non-believer, and he will do so impartially. We understand impartiality. The expectation in our judicial system is that anytime anyone stands before a judge, they will be judged by the same standard as everyone else. Impartiality means no discrimination, no favoritism. A judge should not consider the person's background or ethnicity or age or economic status. A judge in a courtroom is going to look at the facts of the case, not the face of the individual. A good judge makes judgments according to the merits of the individual, what he has done or not done. This is impartiality. And the reason we even have this expectation of anyone who is in any way standing in the position of judging is because we know intuitively that this is how God judges. And so this is our expectation. But it's not just in the area of criminal matters. Judgments are made in all sorts of areas. Children, they enter projects that get judged in an art fair. Colleges make judgments about who they will accept as students. Not everybody gets in. Coaches make judgments about who's going to make the baseball team and who does not. And in all of this, what? There is an expectation of impartiality. We want a piece of art to be judged on its merits, regardless of who created it. That shouldn't matter, right? We want colleges to accept students who do well academically, not because of their race or gender or economic status. We want coaches to choose the best players if you're a sport person, not the players, not the ones who they got paid under the table to choose. Impartiality. God impartially judges according to each one's work. We read that in verse 17. Now, 
we cannot think of God as judge without also thinking about the coming day of judgment. In fact, the Father has turned over final judgment to the Son. Listen to John 5.27. And he, that is the Father, gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew 16.27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. And now listen to Romans 14.10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, followed by verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Christians and non-Christians alike will be judged. Christians will not be exempt from judgment. At 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. And he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. Maybe you're thinking at this point, I'm a Christian. Am I not saved based on what Jesus did for me through his death and resurrection. Yes, if you are a Christian, you are saved on that basis and on that basis alone. So your next question might be, then how will I still be judged according to my works? That's a great question. And here's the answer. Every person who dies without Jesus will stand before Jesus condemned by their deeds. Jesus said in John 3, 18, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you die without Christ, there's no way to change your fate on the day of judgment. I think we understand that. Your eternal destination is sealed in this life. And judgment for the unbeliever will not only be the condemnation of eternal separation from the presence of God, but also will include degrees of punishment based on what they did or did not do. Revelation 20.12, the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. There will be degrees of punishment. Likewise, the Christian will also stand before God in judgment. The Christian will not be eternally condemned because Jesus was condemned in his place. If there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, there will be no condemnation then on the day of judgment either. Jesus said in John 3.18, He who believes in the Son is not judged. And then in verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. The only reason that you will hear, come, you who are blessed by my Father. The only reason you will hear that is because you chose in this life to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. Yet, there will still be a judgment of works for the Christian. Just like there will be degrees of punishment for the unbeliever, so there will be degrees of rewards for the believer. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 15. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, 
because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This tells us four things right off the bat. First, as Christians, the quality of our works will be evaluated. Secondly, works that are of eternal significance will be rewarded. Thirdly, works that are not of eternal value will be lost. And finally, the Christian will be saved even if his works are lost. Why? Well, because a Christian is not saved by works. He or she is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that, that we cannot completely comprehend. The joy of every Christian will be full for eternity, yes. The peace of every Christian will be eternally established. Every Christian is going to live forever in the fullness of God's presence, yet, in some way, what we do here in this life matters. Our good deeds are going to ripple into eternity. God will reward each Christian based on what he or she did. That's what the text says. Whether this is the reward of greater responsibility or a reward of some other type, how you live your life as a Christian now matters. And of course, that is what Peter is concerned about. Peter mentions a coming judgment because we ought to live in light of that judgment now. And this leads to the next point that we need to lay hold of in this passage, still in verse 17. Even though the allusion here is to a future judgment, the application is to your present experience. We've considered the coming judgment. Now let's look at the present discipline. The present discipline. Now we know God's not going to punish the Christian because Jesus was punished in his or her place. If God does not punish the Christian, however, what exactly does the Lord do when a Christian sins? Remember, God is a father. God does exactly the same thing any good earthly father would do. He disciplines his children. After all, we are addressing as father the one who impartially judges. You might have noticed that Peter does not write the one who will judge, God will certainly judge, but judges as in the one who impartially judges, that's present tense. That's happening now. God is currently judging according to each man's work. We know that this current judgment is not final judgment, so it must be something else. It's the judgment of discipline. And that is why you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The Christian should fear the present discipline of God. A good father would never allow his children to disobey without consequences. So why should we expect our Heavenly Father to act any different? Again, to understand the discipline of the Lord, we only need to look as far 
as the reason children are disciplined for disobedience. You don't spank your child or ground your child or correct your child because you hate them. No, you do it because you love them. You love them so much that you want to see them make decisions that will benefit them. You discipline them to remind them that certain actions and words and decisions, if left unchecked, will destroy them. Discipline is course correction. God always disciplines his children in love. He allows hardships and difficulties and negative consequences when we disobey. Because he does not want us to continue down that path. He's trying to get our attention. Hebrews 12, 7. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there who his father does not discipline? And our text in chapter 1, verse 17, comes right after verse 16. What does verse 16 say? You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is no accident that verse 17 comes after verse 16. When we, as God's children, cease to reflect his character in our behavior, when we cease to live out holiness, he reminds us through the discipline of negative consequences. But there's another aspect of discipline. It does not always fall because of disobedience. Discipline often comes simply because we need it. We are not yet like Jesus in every way. I am not yet who I ought to be. Yes, in Christ, the Father receives me just as I am, but he refuses to lead me this way. And you did the same thing for your children. Why can't I go to his house? Your son asked. Well, the reason is because you didn't have a good feeling about him going to that person's house. What you answered was, because I said so. Or, you need to wear something dressier to this event. And your daughter gave you a scowl for saying that. She didn't see why it mattered. But you knew the impression she made to those who would be at this event was important for her future. Both of these examples are forms of discipline. You guided and directed, sometimes with your no's and sometimes with your yeses, because you had a broader and wiser view as to what is best for your children. And they did not always understand. They didn't, they didn't have to understand. And so it is with our Father in Heaven. As one commentator wrote, paternal authority includes the right and responsibility of judging and disciplining family members. The discipline of God is utterly necessary, and it is ongoing, at least in this life. God sees what you don't see. God understands what you don't understand. He knows where he is leading you, and he knows the person that he intends to make you. He sees the end. This character formation will take shaping and molding and pressing and pulling. You won't always understand. You will throw a pity party at times. The Lord is not deterred in the least. He is dealing with you according to his great love. This is the sense of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. Did you catch that? So that we may share his holiness. That's interesting. 
Peter just finished telling us in verse 15, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We know that it's God's desire that we be set apart in how we live our lives, different in word and in deeds from those around us who do not call him father. Hebrews 12.10 says, I just read it, the purpose of discipline is so that we might share in God's holiness. And now Peter is telling us one of the ways to do that. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. This is exactly what Peter's audience needed to understand. And it's what you and I need to understand as well. When you face difficult circumstances, when you face antagonistic people, when you face seasons of sorrow and suffering, it is all for a reason. God is seeking to make you holy. And it is precisely by way of the difficult circumstances that you experience how he is doing so. And this is especially the case when you're facing hostility as a direct result of following Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. What if you learned to view all those difficulties and obstacles as God's discipline? Far from the things that befall you being accidents, they are purposeful. God's discipline corrects your course. There's a reason. It is adversity that drives you to your knees in prayer. Right? The suffering that you experience drives you closer to the Lord. It reminds you He is the one who not only comforts, but also the one who delivers. And every time you choose to trust Him, every time you choose to let the Lord have His way, you become a little more like Jesus. Jesus always trusted the Father. Jesus always allowed God to have his way. To become a little more like Jesus is to become holier in your behavior. God's discipline is character formation. God's discipline corrects your course. God is your Father, so he disciplines you for your good. God is also an impartial judge, so he will discipline you according to your works. The attitude, therefore, you and I must maintain is that we conduct ourselves in fear before him today. And this is not fear in the sense that we are afraid of God, nor is it simply reverence, but it's really a combination of the two. We should fear the discipline that will fall should we choose to disobey. We should also stand in amazed awe and humility before the one who is using all of our circumstances to draw us closer to himself. Think of the wonder it is to realize how in everything God's discipline is correcting your course. You might not have had an especially loving or kind earthly dad, but make no mistake, you have in God a perfect father. He never makes a mistake and what he allows into your life. God is going to use all of it for what he knows is best for you if you will simply trust him. 
a child who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt his father loves him, will fear disobeying his father because he legitimately fears the consequences. But he will also fear disobeying him because he wants nothing more than to please his father. He stands in awe of his wisdom. He, he trusts in him implicitly. We now know the purpose of God's discipline. It's to make us holy. That's the what. The what. And we know that to receive God's discipline, we must submit to what he is doing today. That's the how. But there's one more thing. And this is important because this is the why. And it deals with knowledge. It deals with what we know. We read in verses 18 through 19 about this knowledge. So let's consider receiving discipline. Receiving discipline. There is that age when a child begins to ask that one word question. Why? Everything that happens. Why? Everything you tell the child to do. Why? It can be cute. It quickly becomes annoying. And eventually the child learns that it's not appropriate to always insist to know why something is the way it is. However, God and his grace often does tell us why. Now, he may not always do that for specific events that are happening in our lives, but if you notice in the Bible, nearly every one of God's commands or instructions is accompanied by a reason. The why. We need reasons. Reasons give us motivation. And here is the motivation in the text for cooperating with God's discipline. This is the why. Verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Peter is writing to Christians, many of whom are Jewish. We see this in the way that Peter is making extensive use of the Old Testament, his letter. But there are also surely Gentiles among the churches as well. These Jewish believers they did not come out of a pagan background like the Gentile believers did. But whether Jew or Gentile, every one of Peter's readers was redeemed from a futile way of life. For the Jewish person, it was futile because they thought by trying to follow the law that they would receive life. But trying to keep the law to please God is futile. No one can keep the law perfectly. And perfection is what the law demands. Futility. Now, now for the Gentile who grew up steeped in idolatry and pagan practices, their life was futile because they worshipped gods who could not help them. They bowed down to idols of their own making and they pursued practices that only led to death. You see, it really doesn't matter whether you were religious or a pagan. It doesn't matter if you were if you were trying really hard to please God and everyone else for that matter, or only pleasing yourself, either path is the path of futility. The person who is trusting in her good works to save her is just as lost as the person who is trusting in an idol like money or power or position. The person who beats his breast in prayer and says, at least I'm not like those other people is just as lost as the one who never prays. 
You will never enter into a relationship with God based on what you do. You will never find God in the darkness of idolatry and arrogance. Each of these approaches, religious works or idolatry, is futile because it is not any of these things, it is not through them that you can be brought to God. At some point, anyone who becomes a Christian realizes how meaningless their life apart from God really is. Regardless of whether you came to this conclusion as a religious person or as a pagan, or maybe as somebody who didn't care at all, you inherited this view from those who came before you. We're shaped by our environment. We're shaped by the belief systems that are instilled in us, many of those unspoken, sometimes from our parents, sometimes from society or education or social media. Our forefathers are those who have gone before us. And for Peter's readers, Jew or Gentile, it was very difficult for any of them to imagine turning their back on their ancestors. Now, for us, that's no big deal because we're so individualistic. We we live in a society that, that emphasizes the individual. So we have trouble comprehending why this was a big deal to turn your back on your traditions. But to the first century person, everything old was good. Everything new was suspicious. In other words, it is destructive to the soul and to society to embrace something new. That was the thinking. And this is one of the reasons the Christians stood out. Because they were not concerned about the status quo. They openly rejected the idolatrous practices and the ungodly behavior that everyone had always participated in. They were adamant that God is the creator and there is only one way to be reconciled to him. What you inherited from your forefathers will only condemn you. You need a new inheritance, one that's bestowed on you by a new father. And of course, this is exactly what God offers. And the way out of futility the Lord has provided is redemption. The way the word redeemed is used here in verse 18 carries with it the idea of paying a ransom. Now, Peter's audience was familiar with the concept of purchasing a slave's freedom. Because a price was paid, the slave was set free. We were slaves to our way of doing things. What we thought was freedom was really servitude. And this is what is so deceptive about the bondage of our lives before we called God Father. We often did not even realize that we were slaves. But Jesus says, John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Many people think that money will buy them freedom from anxiety. They think that money will free them from their problems. Some of the unhappiest people in the world happen to also be the wealthiest. Listen to these words that a Wall Street executive wrote back in 2017. A decade into my career, I was sitting on the couch alone in my 2,700 square foot Tribeca apartment. It was just after Christmas and I had received a $2 million bonus. I was thinking to myself, if I could just make $3 million next year, then I'll be happy. I sought happiness like a crack addict in search of his next rock. 
I constantly craved for my next hit of happiness. After making $2 million, I thought I was on the one-yard line. I was so close. Only in looking back do I realize how miserable I was. No matter how much money, experiences, and material things I accumulated, it was never going to be enough. Never. Silver and gold will not deliver anyone from a meaningless existence. Trusting in wealth to do what it was never meant to do, namely give you purpose and meaning or happiness, will leave you worse off than before. So what will ransom us? It's not money. It's not works. It's not our traditions. It's blood. The purchase price out of a futile way of life is blood. In the Bible, blood represents life. Think about it. So long as blood is flowing, there's life. As soon as it ceases to flow, whether because the heart stops or because the body loses too much of it, life ceases. The blood that our text speaks of is as of a lamb un unblemished. And this is, of course, a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. But there is one lamb in particular that was required to be without blemish. That is, without wound or spot or discoloration of any kind. And we find it in Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. After nine plagues, the Lord was prepared to send forth the tenth and final plague upon the Egyptian people. And this was meant to finally compel Pharaoh to free his slaves. Moses told the Israelites to take one lamb per household. And that lamb was to be, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, an unblemished male, a year old. If a household sacrificed a lamb and placed the blood of that lamb on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over their home. That's where we get the word Passover. They would not lose their firstborn son to death. Every family who did this, hiding behind the blood, was spared this horrific loss. Well, because Pharaoh and most of the Egyptians did not do this, they lost their firstborn sons. In this way, Pharaoh was finally compelled to drive the Israelites out. He lost his slaves. They were set free from their futile way of life. God ransomed his people. And the price was the blood of an unblemished lamb. Nearly 1,500 years later, John the Baptist, catching sight of Jesus, proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This statement would have made no sense except every Jew that heard John say that celebrated the Passover every year. They knew about the Lamb, and now the Lamb was a man. Jesus Christ was unblemished. He was unstained. He was untouched by sin. He was spotless. And at the cross, he poured out his blood. His blood representing his perfect life was the payment for your sins and mine. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he entered into the presence of God through his own blood. We read that in Hebrews 9, verse 12. Only the blood of Jesus 
can secure access into God's presence. And when you trust the Lamb of God, you are hiding behind the blood. The wrath of God will not fall upon you because it fell upon Jesus. The blood of Jesus means that you will never be cast out of the presence of God. Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection also means that you are delivered from your futile way of life. You see, the only way that you will ever find meaning is in the source of all meaning. That's God himself. God created you to honor him in every area of life. When you cease living according to the pattern of your forefathers and you begin living in relationship to your heavenly father, you will find the meaning and the purpose that you crave. And out of meaning and purpose flows joy. I said that we would answer the why question. The knowledge that we need is the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us. If you are trusting in him, then you are set free from a life focused only on the here and now. You are set free from a life focused on those things that grieve God. You are set free from feeling like all of it's pointless. You are set free from slavery to other people's opinions. The only opinion that matters is that of the Lord. And he loved you so much that he ransomed your life through the precious blood of his son. And this is why you can live in a culture of death and not embrace the darkness. This is why you can receive insults and not retaliate. This is why you can face hostility and remain faithful and cheerful. This is why the Lord will use you where you are. Knowing what the Lord has brought you out of means you no longer have to live life as if it has no meaning. Knowing what the Lord has brought you into means you no longer have to live in fear or in despair. Your life has a point. And that point is to honor God right where you are. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that though we did live lives of futility, lives without meaning or purpose, we thank you that though that was the case, it's not the case anymore. We know that because of Jesus Christ and of the price that he paid that we might be set free from that former way of life. So Father, help us to live out of what Jesus has done for us and help us to receive your discipline along the way as you only desire the best for us, as you only desire to make us holy, as you are holy. May we receive your grace to submit to what you are doing for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.